Welcome, everyone. This is uh, the joint CNS-NCS podcast. In this particular um, event, we will be discussing the management of intracranial pressure in severe traumatic brain injury. We thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my name is Ryan Kitagawa. I'm the director of neurotrauma for uh, University of Texas at Houston and Memorial Hermann Hospital. Um, and uh, today we'll be discussing the topic, as I mentioned. Um, my partner uh, will introduce herself as well. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ebony Green. I'm a neurosurgery nurse practitioner at the University of Arkansas for um, neurosurgery. I'm the lead APP for the service line um, and I handle all things neuro. So thanks for joining in. Wonderful, thank you so much. So we thought this, uh, this would be an interesting way to, uh, to discuss this particular topic um, from two different perspectives. You know, uh, Ebony is, uh, on the front lines, um, taking care of these patients um, at the bedside, managing the hour by hour and day by day things. Um, you know, myself uh, as a, a neurosurgeon who specializes in neurotrauma, I can also provide a perspective um, from my side of things where uh, more looking at a global and less granule, granular things. It's also very interesting, the different perspectives and how we manage these particular disease processes from, from one institution to the next. And so we can hopefully provide um, a variety of perspectives when it comes to, to treating this, this uh, very challenging disease. Um, so we'll first start off with, um, you know, your standard patient, um, probably a 20-year-old uh, uh, individual who was in a motorcycle crash, uh, severe traumatic brain injury, arrives, uh, eyes closed, um, has to be intubated in the field um, for, for low, uh, low mental status, um, and is withdrawing in all extremities, so E1, VT, M4, withdrawing. Um, their CT scan demonstrates small contusions, nothing obviously that requires surgery. And so usually the next stage is to move on with, with an ICP monitor. And, and if you could talk to us a little bit about what you use at your institution to judge whether or not an, an ICP monitor is indicated in this particular patient. So we've seen the head CT um, and it, it, there are contusions that are present. And as Dr. Kitagawa said, there's nothing emergent. So at my facility, it's either gonna be um, a ventriculostomy, an EVD, or it's gonna be some type of intrapramical monitor like a Bolt, um, Camino is the product that we use. Um, so we're the only level one trauma in the state. And um, you know, there's the 3 million people in my state. And unfortunately, those are the two options that I have to offer patients um, as far as their management and care of any type of closed head injury. Now, do you typically use just the Glasgow Coma Scale score as, as determinant of ICP monitoring or are there other factors that you look at too? So uh, the Glasgow Coma Score is going to be the main factor followed by, of course, um, a head CT exam. And uh, we're going to follow the patient um, after their initial injury. Um, uh, an initial CT scan, whether it's performed at our facility or it might be performed um, at a tertiary facility and then they're transferred to us, um, then it's going to be four to six hours after that initial um, scan is done. Um, and then we're going to, you know, examine them ourselves. We're going to allow them to be off of any sedation as this patient um, we're discussing right now was intubated in the field. So we, of course, would ask what was used to intubate them. Um, how long ago those medications were administered um, and go from there. If it's uh, not surgical and their GCA, GCS required that they do be intubated, um, we would have a discussion with um, the attending staff for neurosurgery 
whether we would put in an EVD or we would put in a bolt. Um, with someone that's withdrawing, more than likely we would uh, lesser for just the intraparenchymal um, monitor instead of putting in a ventriculostomy. And that's just based off of a GCS less than, less than or equal to eight, um, and then their exam of, of withdrawing. And I think that is an important point to make that you did is that, you know, it needs to be a post resuscitative neurological exam and of yes. course not clouded by other other things because typically uh, sedation, um, certainly after intubation can be a pretty big factor involved in this. And of course, we have to think about, you know, other other um, um, substances such as alcohol that could be clouding their exam. And I think, uh, you know, one of the important points that I try to make to my residents is that the ICP monitor is sort of a surrogate for the neurological exam. If you don't have a neurological exam that you can truly follow and know that the patient is okay, um, then that's a point you need to be you know, placing an intraparenchymal, or excuse me, an ICP monitor. Um, you know, for a patient who is not opening up their eyes, but is very purposeful trying to climb out of the bed, you know, they may not necessarily reach a GCS of eight or above. You know, those patients, we will see kind of how they evolve over time, provided the CT scan doesn't show any obvious and, and concerning signs as well. Um, so you mentioned the uh, the intraparenchymal monitor versus the ventriculostomy catheter, and it sounds like a patient who sort of has a borderline exam, um, you know, withdrawing or localizing, you may favor an, an intraparenchymal monitor over an EVD. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, especially the contusions are small now. This is early in their injury, so you you know you're expecting them to swell over the next three days. Um, and typically, we're going to go for the least invasive thing um, first. Um, it may later change depending upon what the repeat scan shows, but initially we're going to start with a bolt. If that patient were to um, have some type of shift that was not present on the initial scan that showed up on the repeat, there might be a discussion as to whether or not we would put in um, a ventriculostomy um, versus leaving a bolt. For example, if the patient had slipped ventricles, um, then we're going to defer just to the bolt instead of trying to uh, navigate something that may cause more harm by going with the ventriculostomy instead. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, generally speaking, uh, obviously a ventriculostomy catheter offers the added benefit of not only being a diagnostic, but also a therapeutic intervention. Um, there is documented higher risk with a ventriculostomy catheter in terms of you know, intracranial hemorrhages caused by that, uh, as well as the infectious risk of a ventriculostomy catheter would be higher than that of your traditional intraparenchymal monitor. Um, you know, in my particular institution, yes, if, if there is a borderline exam that may not necessarily um, you would not necessarily be expected to require long-term ICP management that an intraparenchymal monitor is a reasonable thing. Um, the other thing is that at, uh, for my, me personally, if I'm taking the patient to surgery and they require a ICP monitor uh, after surgery is done, I tend to do a ventriculostomy catheter because I have you know, an ultrasound in the operating room and can more safely place the, the ventriculostomy catheter under direct visualization with the ultrasound. Um, so you know, we've, we've placed our intraparenchymal monitor, um, we've admitted the patient uh, to the ICU. Now, obviously this patient has a GCS of less than eight and can't interact with you. Um, if the cervical CT is negative, um, is that a situation where you are removing the collar immediately or are there other ancillary tests or, or time that you prefer? Um, for us, we would prefer to obtain imaging of the cervical spine specifically, especially if you have someone that's coming in and they're, they're not able to tell us, they're not able to verbalize. Um, whether or not they are feeling pain upon palpitation of their cervical spine. You know, there's a quick mnemonic of GCS 
C345, keep the diaphragm alive, like that type of stuff. You know, those are all little things that I, you know, keep in my, the back of my mind when I'm seeing patients. Um, and I'm like, okay, so they can't tell me, you know, whether or not their neck is hurting. Let's just keep them in a rigid collar keeping in mind that we've also placed this intraparenchymal monitor. So we wanna make sure that it's not too tight, that it could also artificially elevate um, our ICPs as well. So okay. usually I'm waiting until my patients, I have a repeat exam um, and, or I have imaging that tells me that there's no, no ligament injury, which we, we would obtain uh, MRI of the C-spine without contrast at that time. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the, the practices are, are variable across the country. Uh, in my particular practice, um, if we have a high quality thin slice CT that's been reviewed by the radiologist as well as the neurosurgery attendings without any obvious spinal cord compression or any obvious fractures or dislocations, um, in my particular practice, we tend to remove the collar at that point without an MRI. Um, but certainly practices across the country that are utilizing MRIs as an extra layer of security to, to avoid any neurological injury. Um, so uh, after the, we've, we've you know, elevated the head of bed, we've loosened the cervical collar. If the ICPs are still elevated, um, typically the next stage is both sedation as well as hyperosmolar therapy. And what, what sedations do you typically use for the patients? Typically we're using propofol um, and fentanyl um, for sedation for our patients because um, they're shorter acting um, and we're going to be giving them lots of holiday breaks in order to get examined. By lots, I just mean maybe every um, four hours initially until we're comfortable and um, the, you know, that repeat scan is down and that monitor is giving us good, good numbers and it is correlating with what we're seeing the patient do upon examination. Um, and typically, if it is needed, we can escalate to um, something more. Um, uh, rarely have I placed a patient on, say, a Versed drip, um, it, you know, Sometimes you get folks who come in and their um, opiate use is a little higher than the average person. So it takes a little bit more. If we see ourselves getting into having to increase the level of propofol and increasing the amount of fentanyl, that would be a time that we would maybe switch over to um, Versed um, or maybe um, even considering a paralytic at that point if the, the patient's history warrants us to have such high doses because obviously with propofol, you're worried about propofol infusion syndrome. How long am I going to keep somebody down? If I'm running someone, um, you know, at 50 mics of propofol a minute, you're basically going through like a hundred mil bottle in an hour and a half. And that's a lot of propofol to be infusing into someone, um, regardless of how frequently you're waking them up for an exam. Sure. And you did mention that, that you would be checking them uh, every four hours um, on the initial evaluation, then eventually checking them a little less frequently. Um, yeah. You know, it, it is also different various practices along the way. At my particular institution, um, we are doing a Q1 hour neurochecks. Um, to make sure that we are not missing any, any changes in the neurological exam. And I think there are benefits and, and problems with both. Um, number one, for if you're taking a patient and checking them every one hour, particularly for someone who's in ICP crisis, you know, you can really push them over the edge with those neurological exams. And the more frequently you do it, the more times that you will have, you know, potentially ICP spikes along the way. Um, you know, I think the, the benefit is, of course, if there is a neurological change, you're going to catch it more, more frequently. Um, you know, and it is very different styles of doing things. I know in my discussions of my colleagues who are, who are in Europe, 
um, you know, really they will very heavily sedate the patients uh, for prolonged periods of time and you use the ISP monitor as, as their guide in terms of treatments as well as repeat imaging studies. And so, you know, I think that is one variable in terms of, of, of practice patterns. Now, in terms of your treatment with hyperosmolar therapy, do you tend to favor hypertonics or do you tend to favor mannitol? We tend to favor hypertonic salines. There's actually um, a protocol in my institution for someone who is herniating and someone that is has a traumatic brain injury. Um, and the difference is someone who's come in with contusions or they're going to have an intraventricular blood. Of course, they're at a higher risk for having a change and needing to go uh, a change, meaning herniation and needing to go to the OR for some type of intervention, whether it's a decompression or you know evacuation of the clot, if we're able to do that. Um, and so we, we favor with 3%, um, that's our kind of our baseline hypertonic saline. We do have 1.5, 2%, um, and we actually do have 5% as well, but we routinely give 3%. It's available, um, for the nursing staff at bedside. It's available for, um, in our brain code box, um, as well as 23.4% is available in our brain code box as well. So if, if you have someone that has ICPs or someone you're staying in a trauma bay and you're trying to get um, things in pretty quickly, we will give a 500 mil bolus of 3% um, and as opposed to drawing up mannitol um, or giving mannitol to the patients. And is there a particular situation where you would give mannitol over hypertonic saline or is it pretty much always hypertonic? If it's pretty much always hypertonic. The only situation is if I'm on a floor where there's not readily available monitoring, meaning I'm in a remote location where I've gone to see someone that's had a change and they may be, say, in one day surgery or in like a um, an observation unit where they're not tethered to a monitor. Um, and so the only way to know like what their heart rate is and oxygenation would, would be to connect them to a crash cart. And in those situations, I would defer to mannitol um, over uh, giving uh, 3% boluses. Yes, and do you tend to favor uh, continuous drips of hypertonic or do you prefer boluses in a patient who's not overtly herniating but he is having ICP problems? Um, in patients that are having IC, ICP problems, we do a continuous drip as opposed to bolusing. And then, go ahead. In that trauma bay, when we first get them and we get those first labs back from our ISAT, and you know the sodium is one thirty-five, we're going to bolus that five hundred to get them to get them up, and then we'll start a three percent um, continuous infusion, say at thirty, and then routinely check labs every four to six hours to make sure we're not overshooting, and we would include an osm in that as well. And what's the ceiling sodium that you're willing to tolerate before you'd stop the drip? Um, one sixty-five. Um, for someone who are, you know, high ICPs and we're worried about herniation, it's going to be 165. If it's someone that has um, blood, um, like a subdural, and then they just have um, edema from that, we're going to probably be okay with 155, so 145 to 155. But the ceiling for someone that I have a monitor in um, and I'm worried about their brain continuing to swell, it's going to be the higher of that 165, so 155 to 165 range. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's fairly consistent with across the country. 
Um, you know, I, I we've seen a big shift um, in my training um, before. We used to tend to use mannitol quite more frequently, and and as time has gone on, there's really been a shift to hypertonic saline. And in in my own experience, um, when talking at at various conferences um, such as the CNS conference and polling the audience, it seems like the overwhelming majority of people are going with hypertonic saline at this point. Um, my practice is a little bit different. We tend to favor 23.4% saline. Um, and that's something that we usually do in, in bolus dosing as opposed to continuous strips. Um, certainly we use continuous strips for patients who start out on, on, on the lower side and we need to get their, their sodium up in sort of the more uh, normal range of well, 140s followed by you know, boluses of, of sedation. There's certain you know, benefits and, uh, of each different philosophy. You know, the philosophy of putting on a, a continuous drip is that um, you know, you're treating the, the swelling continuously with the hopes of actually potentially preventing um, the ICP from climbing to dangerous levels um, and not having it be in sort of non-physiologic where the ICP is, is very high and then suddenly low and then very high again. Um, you know, the bolus dosing does carry with it the, uh, the benefits of, of having sort of that, creating that osmolar gradient um, mm -hmm. immediately and allowing to, to the, the shift of the fluids to allow the ICP to, to come down and then not avoiding the equilibration that could potentially lessen the effects of it. Um, in addition to that, um, one of the concerns is that, of course, if you if you drive up the sodium too quickly all the way into the 160s on the first day, you're kind of losing that that ability on, on the later times. And so we've certainly seen um, both ways of doing it. And even in my own hospital where the, the trauma surgeons tend to favor um, continuous drips versus us, the neurosurgeons who, who favor uh, boluses. Um, for my own experience with mannitol versus otherwise, you know, mannitol is more readily available in, in the operating room. So we yeah. tend to use it there as well as if there's no central venous access or a limited amount of access, we tend to favor mannitol um, um, versus otherwise. You know, I think most of the time we're using sedation as well as, as hyperosmolar therapy, sort of our standard treatment for ICP. But once it reaches the point um, where the sodium is too high, and in my particular institution, 160 is our, our ceiling for, for, for treatments for when we stop. Now, once we get past that point, we are truly in, in ICP crisis. And then that leaves us with the option of neuromuscular paralytic, hypothermia, uh, pentobarb coma, and surgical decompression. And so what is the protocol for your particular hospital? Um, it's very similar. So our next step for a patient who, you know, our sodium is at its gold and our, our osm is greater than 320, um, our next step would be to place the patient on a paralytic drip, which would be um, Nimbex. And sometimes we do hypothermia hypothermia at the same time um, that we are placing the patient on a, a on a drip, um, the, which is exactly what I've, I spent my day doing today, chasing somebody's ICPs, trying to get them down. Um, and we, we use Nimbex as a paralytic and the nurses are educated to a goal of twitches. So we use a train of four um, and then always checking the, the patient's pupils um, every hour. And then of course, if someone's um, para on a paralytic, typically we also place them on continuous uh, beach, which is just another set of eyeballs on something. Um, you know, it's not really adding to the management, but it is letting us know if something else is going on. Um, like your ICPs are up because you're seizing or the ICP is up as, you know, some other intervention that we um, are not necessarily done by say respiratory therapy or the bedside nurse that we're able to capture in that respect. And that's just um, something that's been newly instituted. Um, 
so it's going to be Nimbex as a paralytic and then um, going to the hypothermia. Um, and, you know, these are all interventions that we're discussing that's happening within that first 72 hours. You know, this is someone whom either we deemed as not a surgical candidate or maybe we've gotten to the point where we could have taken them earlier, but we were given them a chance with medical management, um, say because of their age or other comorbidities that may be happening. You know, you may have someone that has four, four extremities that are in casts or external fixators as well. And then, you know, they have other problems and their head just happens to be an issue as well. Um, so we're gonna do that and then go to hypothermia um, and with a target of somewhere between, you know, 33 and 34, depending um, degrees, depending on what else is going on with the patient and able to control those ICPs. And would your next step after that point be a pentabarb coma or would you be more favoring decompression at that point? So after that point, it's going to be a pentabarb coma. Um, and it's a plus and a minus. Uh, with the pentabarb coma, you know, as I said, once we paralyze them, they're typically already connected to a video EEG continuous monitoring. Um, and so it would be easy to go to pentabarb for that next step. The downside to that is the way to test the levels to make sure somebody's actually therapeutic on that and the return around time at my facility, unfortunately, it takes about a day before we can actually get the labs back because they're not done in-house. They're actually sent to another neighboring hospital. Um, and then those labs are run there and then we get the results back. So it just gives a little bit of a lag time there. Um, so we use it as a last resort before, um, you know, having to take someone to the OR for decompression. Yeah, and I think that that's also an interesting perspective. Um, you know, our institutions uh, manage people uh, quite differently. Um, at my particular institution, we tend to be extremely surgically aggressive um, in terms of our decompression of the patients. Um, and so in general, uh, we will use neuromuscular paralytics. It's, it's a little bit more um, uncommon at my institution. We, we sometimes use them, for example, if you need to transport a patient to CT scan or lay them flat in order to get the CT, we'll give them a, a dose of uh, paralytic. We tend to use rocuronium uh, over others. Um, in addition to that, you know, it's a pretty rare thing at my institution for us to be thinking about um, um, uh, hypothermia or, or pentabarb coma. Um, you know, really, if we have exceeded the amount of sedation we're capable of giving and our sodium is very high, if the patient is still very early in the process of cerebral edema, um, you know, we tend to favor decompressing them quite early. Um, we usually reserve hypothermia and pentobarbicoma either to somebody who is clearly not a surgical candidate, like a cirrhotic with a refractory um, 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 coagulopathy, um, or a patient who has actually already been decompressed, already has a craniectomy, but still having ICP issues, then we will, we will transition over to hypothermia as well as pentobarbicoma. Um, you know, the one uh, group of patients that we tend to not decompress are those that are several days out from their mm -hmm. trauma um, and their ICPs are just sort of lingering in the higher side of things. You know, if someone is day six, day seven, still having intermittent ICP issues, um, you know, we may use a little bit of hypothermia along the way to kind of get them through those last few days as opposed to decompressing them at such a late time. But um, in my own particular practice, we tend to, to decompress very early um, 
accepting the possible complications from surgery while saving them the potential complications for the medical side of things, which, um, you know, I think is very institution dependent as well. Um, now, if you've achieved what you're looking for in terms of uh, your ICP management, um, you know, how do you decide whether to deescalate therapies and which ones do you stop first? Um, we do the last one added, first one off type approach um, when we're looking at deescalating things. And just another point to mention, you know, in another step we would have taken prior to um, putting somebody on paralytic or even in a pentobarb coma, of course, we would have like maximized their oxygenation status and making sure that they weren't hypotensive and, you know, keep making sure their stats stay 93 to 95 and their um, PCO2 is um, like 35 to like 42, 43 in that range um, and keeping their systolics up. So, you know, we've done all these things. We're going to start taking, um, weaning them off the pentobarb would be the first thing. Again, getting levels to make sure it's completely out of their system and monitoring those ICPs and making sure that they um, stay um, less than 25, um, 22 to 25 range, again, depending on the patient's age and depending on what we've been um, dealing with. Um, if it's a patient, for example, that we have been surgically aggressive with, um, um, which tends to be in our younger patients. So under the age of 45 and younger, we tend to be a little bit more surgically aggressive with those. Um, then we are gonna leave that ICP monitoring device in for a little bit longer and we're going to wean them off of their um, paralytics and wean them off, of, if they're in a pentobarb coma, wean them off of that. Um, we, we would then begin to wake them up from sedation. So if it's somebody that we have on Versed, we're gonna start weaning down the Versed, but leaving the fentanyl, um, potentially switching them over from Versed to maybe Presidex and fentanyl to see if that would help as well. Um, um, at my facility, you can be on Presidex and you don't have to be on a ventilator. Um, so, you know, if there is patients who tend to get extremely agitated or I always say they have an angry brain and sometimes they self-extubate themselves and you just, say, okay, well, we're going to let you fly for five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes before we trach you or um, re-intubate you um, just to see how they're going to do. So typically we're trying to get off the pentobar, followed by the paralytic, followed by whatever we have for sedation, whether it's propofol or um, whether it's for sedge, switching them to Presidex and then leaving the fentanyl for last. It's kind of our yeah. reversal of the things. Yeah, I think you made some really great points, and I think that's sort of the last thing we'll address before before we um, we finish. You know, I think that uh, a tier based therapy is is absolutely essential in terms of your treatment for ICP management. And by tiers, I mean you start off with those interventions that are the least risky and carry with them the least amount of complications. And so you start with head to bed elevated, uh, you know, good positioning. Um, adequate sedation, and then you add, of course, some hyperosmolar therapy on top of that. Following that, you add on things like neuromuscular paralytic, hypothermia, pentobarbital, sort of steadily escalating in terms of your, your intensity of therapies. Um, you know, once you achieve ICP control, which of course is variable based on the, the various locations that you're at, you know, for us, it's, it's over 24 hours without any treatments, any additional treatments for, for an ICP spike. And of course, we try to wean our, our therapies 
um, during regular kind of daylight hours so that there's not ICT crisis in the middle of the night with fewer support. And then yes, as you've escalated from tier one uh, uh, up to further therapies, then you de-escalate starting at the most dangerous therapies and working towards the least, meaning that you start removing the pentobarbital, the hypothermia, then the neuromuscular paralytic, and then the sedation as, as you walk down from that. And I think that's a, a really important point for, for all of our learners involved. Um, we thank you very much for joining us. I hope we provided you with, with two um, um, interesting perspectives on, on how to manage these, these particularly challenging patients and hopefully add some, some uh, tidbits to assist you while at the bedside. Um, we do wanna mention that there are other podcasts available from the uh, um, um, groups uh, from the CNS and the NCS websites um, to help you in, in your management of obviously very challenging uh, neurological and neurosurgical patients. Uh, thank you very much for my guests and we wish you all a good day.